0: 1968, uh, Apollo 8 astronauts Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman, uh, the first human beings to travel to the moon, although they did not land there, they just went around and around a few times, they witnessed something remarkable for the first time in human history. Uh, They saw an Earth rise. The earth rising above the lunar horizon. To commemorate this event, and with the ninth earth rise coinciding with Christmas Eve back at home, they read from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Roughly one in four people alive at the time, that was one billion people in 64 countries, heard the Word of God, according to the King James Bible. Soon afterwards, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, founder of the American Atheists Society, sued the United States government, alleging violations of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. The First Amendment prevents the government from making laws that enforce a state religion or inhibit freedom of religion or oppress freedom of speech or of the press. Although the First Amendment does not use the words church and state, the First Amendment is associated with the idea of a separation of church and state. her. O'Hare believed that government employees, in this case NASA astronauts, using work time to read scripture to one billion people, that violated the separation of church and state. That was her lawsuit, and it was dismissed. But for well over a thousand years, there was no separation between church and state in anybody's mind. For well over a thousand years, to be born in Europe was to be born a Christian. Babies were baptized, and everyone was a Christian, by definition, a Catholic Christian. The church was seamlessly involved in political and military leadership and affairs. The Pope was the most powerful man in Europe. And likewise, also, kings and rulers, they based their laws on religious grounds and sacred texts. So there was no distinction. They were seamlessly involved in each other's business. But today, we take for granted the existence of many separate and distinct Christian denominations. Today, we believe in freedom of religion as a basic human right. And we regularly appeal in public and also in private conversation to some vague notion that we have labeled the separation of church and state. How did these things come about? Well, that's what I'd like to focus on today. Uh, Today's talk is the uh, third of a four-part series of sermons uh, all about a period of history that today is known as the Age of Enlightenment, or perhaps could be more accurately called the Age of Reason. Roughly, we're looking at the 1600s and the 1700s. Two weeks ago, we looked at the birth of the modern mind and compared that to the pre-modern mind that came before it. last week, we considered the birth of evangelicalism as a religious, social, cultural, cultural movement based upon a spiritual phenomenon. And we got as far last week as considering the work of John Wesley and George Whitfield in the 1700s. Their preaching took the English-speaking world of their day by storm sparking one of the most remarkable revivals in all of history, utterly transforming both the British Isles and the American colonies. By the end of John Wesley's life, there were around 40,000 Methodists in North America and around 80,000 Methodists in England. Now, uh, uh, John Wesley always, always, always understood himself, considered himself to be a member of the Church of England. And he understood the Methodists, those evangelicals who attended Methodist societies and Methodist classes, he understood them likewise to be members of the Church of England, people who were baptized and confirmed and received Holy Communion at the hands of ordained Uh, Anglican clergy, Church of England clergy, in Church of England parish churches. But certain things in England seemed to make a, a, a division between the Church of England and the Methodists only a matter of time. And they were simple things. Like, for example, firstly, when people associate spiritual growth with one place rather than another place, Uh, that other place tends to to lose its hold on people's loyalty and sense of affiliation. Um, That deep connection these Methodists had with their fellow Methodists as they read together from the Bible and prayed, uh, that that really meant basically they they felt less and less inclined to view themselves as Anglicans or have any meaningful connection with the Church of England. Also, the Methodist movement was really fast-growing. And they needed preachers and teachers and discipling leaders, and they they needed them quickly. Um, So quickly, indeed, that the Church of England would never be able to keep up by ordaining people speedily enough. The the Methodists would have to become self-governing with indigenous leadership sooner or later. And, of course, within Methodism, there were the seeds of further differentiation and, indeed, further separations. Um, You see, for example, um, in all of his preaching, John Wesley stressed something that today we consider and call Arminian theology. Arminian theology is named after a Dutch professor who lived in the 1500s. Arminian theology stresses the notion that all human beings... Are free to either choose or refuse the grace of God on offer in the gospel. If human beings aren't free to choose or refuse, how then could God judge us? Um, so, Arminian theology stresses human free will. Arminian theology is often contrasted with what's called Calvinism because Calvinism is associated with John Calvin, a leader of the European Reformation in the early 1500s. Calvinism, by the way, does not necessarily actually or accurately reflect what John Calvin actually believed or taught. But the association has stuck. Calvinism is the notion that sin renders all human beings, completely incapable of choosing Christ and receiving the forgiveness that's on offer in the gospel, except that God, through his Holy Spirit, allows them to. Thus, in every single case of a human being repenting and surrendering their lives to Jesus, that is, the Holy Spirit's work in their life, allowing them to respond to God in a way that pleases God. Um, what that means is that Calvinism teaches and defends the biblical doctrine of predestination. That idea that God is utterly sovereign over the process of evangelism and that all of God's people have been chosen beforehand. Indeed, before the beginning of time. Which theology is right? Right? Calvinism or Arminian theology? What's the right answer? Which one's correct? Well, both of them, of course. But that's a conversation for another day. The point is that both George Whitfield and John Wesley, as evangelists working together, they had deep convictions about this stuff, but their convictions were opposite convictions. John the Arminian and George the Calvinist these deep convictions actually almost broke their friendship, but not quite. Even so, the controversy led to opposing and rival camps within the Methodist movement, the Arminian societies, following Wesley, and the Calvinist societies, following Whitfield. So that's really a little bit about how Methodism becomes a new denomination all by itself in the UK. In uh, the American colonies... When America rebelled against British rule, well, the Methodists just had to separate from the Church of England and uh, circumstances dictating the creation of a new denomination, an independent association of churches. Um, At this point, indeed, we should consider the third of the great evangelical movements that I spoke of last week. Uh, The pietists in Germany the Methodists in Britain, and now, thirdly, let's look at the Great Awakening in the American colonies. Uh, as you possibly already know, during the 1600s, 13 separate British colonies sprang into life in North America. Each of these 13 colonies had their own birth narrative, so to speak. Each one had a different reason for being. They were completely Um, completely uh, um, separate stories, unique, um, their context and their situation. For some of these colonies, the founding reason had been religious convictions, um, uh, religious imperatives. A common thread, in some places but not all, was that many of these colonists um, were fleeing persecution as religious dissidents, or non-conformists, fleeing some degree of prosecution, persecution, or rejection in either in the British Isles or in uh, the, uh, um, the European continent. Uh, thus across these 13 colonies there were Puritans, Roman Catholics, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, Methodists, and many many others. Even as the Church of England remains the official religion, of most of these colonies. Significantly, for our purposes here, these were often people wanting um, freedom from religious persecution. But that did not mean that they wanted freedom of religion as we would recognize it today. Some of the uh, North colonies, indeed, colonies such as New England, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, they were established to be holy Puritan commonwealths, where, in every way, religious and devotional life was a strict matter of the state. It was all down in law. Um, Although it would come later, these 13 colonies did not share a common identity, nor did they have any type of unity. But the same spiritual awakening that I spoke of last week um, when describing the pietists of Germany and then the Methodists of Great Britain, this same spiritual awakening took hold of these colonies in waves of of spiritual renewal, which became known as the Great Awakening. The first signs of this revival appeared in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1734. The pastor of Christ Church, Northampton, Jonathan Edwards, had been preaching there for several years without anything exceptional happening. When suddenly, people started to respond to his sermons like never before. At an observable level, congregations responded with intense emotional outbursts, weeping and tears, cries and shouts and um, fainting fits and so on and so forth something miraculous was happening, a move of the Holy Spirit. As Jonathan Edwards preached the gospel, large numbers of people believed him and, confessing their sins, came to faith in Jesus Christ. This was, as historians sometimes put it, a hurricane force, a mighty hurricane force move of the wind of the Holy Spirit. And it went on for some three years. Um, What made this uh, movement special, however, was that it was like a fire. It seemed to go from church to church. It it went across denominational boundaries. It went across um, uh, colonial boundaries. Anglicans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, pastors and evangelists, swapping pulpits and churches, preaching in the fields, tent meetings, revivals, so on and so forth. And there were many preachers preaching, including the Englishman George Whitfield, of whom I spoke last week. But the most famous of them was Jonathan Edwards. And on the 8th of July, 1741, some seven years indeed after the start of this movement, Jonathan Edwards preached uh, his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The point of the sermon was simple. The unrepentant, unconverted sinner is at every single moment of their life in terrible peril of instantaneously being transferred to hell where they would experience unbearable, unimaginable, eternal conscious torment in the fires of hell. And that was because of the unspeakable, the unimaginable, the unimaginably powerful, fierce hatred and abhorrence of our sin that our holy God has. That is the danger that the unrepentant sinner is in every moment of their lives. But there is an answer to this predicament. Turn to Jesus Christ, receive the forgiveness of sin that he offers and then live rightly with him and for him in the sure hope of eternal life and fellowship with the almighty God in heaven for he has done it on our behalf on the cross. The sermon, by the way, is truly extraordinary. Um, In some ways, I I don't want to describe it too much, because I I would like every single one of you to to actually go home, Google it, download it, and read it for yourselves. Um, The sermon, just by way of warning, is 7,544 words long, making it substantially double one of my sermons, substantially more than double. I estimate that if Jonathan Edwards preaches at the same rate I do, it would have taken him 70 minutes to get through this sermon uninterrupted. However, he was interrupted. In fact, as he preached, he had to pause continuously as there were gasps, cries, sobs, bawling filled the room. I don't know, but it probably took him 90 minutes, an hour and a half to get through this sermon. The content of the sermon reveals that Jonathan Edwards on that day was preaching to a large congregation of all ages, including young children. He, uh, in his sermon, he addresses each specific age and stage in turn, including children. Edwards begins with a text from the book of Deuteronomy, but then as he develops his lesson, he quotes and cites from texts all over the Bible. So it is not an expository Bible sermon, as we'd recognize it today when you, you unpack one passage. Rather, it's what we would call a doctrinal or topical sermon, as indeed mine is today. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant theologian, and he was the third president of Princeton University, New Jersey. As we might expect then, his sermon actually is extremely well-reasoned, and it is a theological tour de force, going much deeper than I would ever fear to do on a Sunday morning. It's, it's really dense stuff, and it goes for 90 minutes. How do you feel about that? <laughs> when I read this sermon, I was astonished. Um, perhaps what is most striking is that Jonathan Edwards details in actually almost excruciating detail something that all moderns, post-moderns, and post-post-moderns find very, very difficult to talk about. And that is how angry God is at sin. And how the natural world likewise finds our very presence offensive because of our sin. Here's a short quotation from his, from his sermon. As I read it, you'll probably recognize allusions to Romans chapter 8, but you'll also, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, recognize that he champions one of the major themes of the Old Testament, which is that our sin pollutes the land. Sooner or later, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be done with us. It'll, I will have had a gutful of our presence. Were it not that so is the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. You are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun don't willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth don't willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts. Nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air don't willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with, and don't willingly subserve to any other purpose, and groan when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. Moderns, by the way, don't really like being shouted at, do we? Um, That God might be angry with us because of sin, that Twice wise is highly offensive to the modern mind. Um, uh, Moderns, uh, we might remember, we really like logic and reason. Spock, you might remember from two weeks ago, is our modernist hero. Uh, So a God who experiences or indeed acts upon anger is so unreasonable. The second count as to why we really struggle with this is that we, we rationalize. We rationalize. That's, that's the whole point of the movement. We're reasonable and we rationalize. We rationalize our decisions and our motives. And in rationalization, we most effectively blind ourselves using modern devices. We blind ourselves to the evil of our cowardly, lying, self-preservatory, faithless, cross-despising, un-Jesus-likeness. Uh, so this is an extraordinary sermon, absolutely extraordinary. And it's um, actually, it's left its mark in Western culture. Have you ever heard the expression, hellfire and brimstone preacher? Well, um, Jonathan Edwards, unfortunately, is just so remembered as the archetypal Hellfire and brimstone preacher, meaning someone who psychologically beats up his audience into fear-driven decisions. People caught up in the emotions of the moment. But such a designation actually is unjust. Jonathan Edwards preached the gospel of grace so well because he had the courage to say clearly... What, Jesus, what it is that Jesus is actually saving us from. Um, he, he, he's not saving us from an unfulfilled life. He's not saving us from failing to make our aspirations. J- Jesus is saving us from the wrath of an angry God. And this is a particularly difficult message for moderns to hear. But for us, we're Christians. We follow Jesus and we believe what Jesus has to say. In all four Gospels, Jesus makes abundantly clear his belief in the existence of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. And he sees this danger of torment in hell not as a technical possibility, but rather as the natural and immediate destination of every human being, who refuses to believe in him, follow him, and obey him. In other words, non Christians aren't in danger of the possibility of condemnation to hell, but rather humanity stands already alike and in common condemned to hell. And in the light of that, Jesus preaches repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. So, if Jonathan Edwards or any other preacher might ever be accused of being fire and brimstone preachers, perhaps we should look first to Jesus and see what he has to say. Returning to the Great Awakening. These revivals led to all kinds of social and political effects on the 13 American colonies. As people came to faith in Jesus Christ, it created and then strengthened a shared identity across churches, denominations, and across colonies. They were uniting. And you know what? One day they would call themselves United. Also, as large numbers of people experienced conversion experiences as teenagers and as adults, after having been raised as churchgoers since infancy, there was a sudden loss in the whole idea of infant baptism. Suddenly, it was a sacrament without meaning. America, in a very real sense, went all Baptist on us. Isaac Bacchus was raised in rural Puritan, Connecticut. In his one-room schoolhouse, he learnt that the good order of Connecticut society was protected by both the religious training of the churches as well as by the laws of the colony. Such laws safeguarding Sabbath observance, church attendance, and all other kinds of things that were moral and right, biblically speaking. The church and the state, they went hand in hand, they did it together. As the Great Awakening rolled through his hometown of Norwich in 1741, the 17-year-old's mother was converted. And soon he also realized that the quote-unquote appointed time for his conversion had also come. And he was born again without any accompanying fanfare as he was doing some mowing in a field nearby. He later wrote... I was enabled by divine lights to see the perfect righteousness of Christ and the freeness and riches of his grace with some clearness that my soul was drawn forth to trust him for salvation. Um, we we thought about this conversion experience, this moment of spiritual encounter, this moment of meeting Jesus for yourself. We this the, the powerful convictions that arise from it. We, we, we thought about this last week as the first and foremost characteristic of evangelicalism as a social, cultural, religious movement based upon a spiritual phenomenon. Conversion experience, fundamental to evangelicalism. The power of his newfound convictions led. Isaac Bacchus, and many others like him, to formally become Baptists, moving away from their Puritan Church of England background. But what he needed in Connecticut was the legal right to do so, and thereafter, he wanted the right to bar from his church any who lacked the same conversion experience that he'd personally had seeing as church was for converted saints, not for unrepentant sinners. Isaac Bacchus became, in terms of the history of the United States of America, one of the chief architects and campaigners for a separation of church and state. Remember that the founding fathers of America, they'd fled to the colonies in order to escape religious persecution. But not because they wanted freedom of religion as we'd understand it now. No, they wanted state support and enforcement and endorsement of religious attendance and belief, just their religious belief. Now, men like Thomas Jefferson and Isaac Bacchus realized that, to quote Bacchus, religion is a voluntary obedience unto God, which force cannot promote. Bacchus taught that God has appointed two different kinds of government in the world, which are different in their nature and ought never be confounded. Unquote. One is civil, the other ecclesiastical. The civil legislature, then, must never function so as to meddle in religious affairs. Thus, the idea of a separation between church and state, an idea now widely appealed to across the one-third world, it is an idea that does not appear in any actual constitution of any actual nation. It's not in America's constitution, it's not in our constitution, but it is an idea behind the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America. So then, the idea of a separation of church and state is thus not an idea dreamt up by secularists wanting to keep Christianity and religion in general out of public policy and debate, but rather it was felt to be a necessary ingredient to making America a Christian nation. Without a separation of church and state, America couldn't fulfill its destiny of becoming a Christian nation because for the kingdom of God to come to America, that must be by way of the majority of the citizens being persuaded to submit voluntarily to the laws of God. Returning now, then, to Madeleine Murray O'Hare and her atheist associates, they had it backwards. Separation of church and state and and American ideal, it was not about enshrining America as a secular nation, but rather it was all about enshrining in the Constitution the right of Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman to preach the gospel, whether they be at home or church or work or school. Separation of church and state does not mean that kids can't pray at state schools. It actually means that the state has no right to say that they can't. That's our lesson for today. Evangelicalism depends upon human beings being allowed to make decisions according to their conscience. In order for conversions to be considered authentic, evangelical Christians must work to create conditions whereby such conversions are free and voluntary, not forced. Giving conscience such a free reign means, of course, the essential existence of denominations as we find we disagree with each other on various matters. It also means freedom of religion, together with a separation of church and state, as values and sentiments vital to the safe functioning of your modern liberal democracy. Perhaps then, in terms of morning tea conversations or lunchtime at home, you might like to consider how each of these things, denominations, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, etc., separation of church and state, we might consider how these things could actually be double-edged swords. Um, At the moment, I'm terribly conflicted by, by something which has got entirely to do with this, And that is that in my denomination, there is a really, really fierce argument about one particular thing. I think those who disagree with me are wrong. But I want to defend their right to follow their conscience in matters of ministry. An idea that's thoroughly modern. And perhaps not biblical at all. But it's how I was raised, So we've got work to do. Double-edged swords. For next week, we'll look at what possibly might be evangelicalism's proudest moment. We'll look at how evangelicalism, as soon as vast numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they tend to roll up their sleeves and go to work tackling the social ills that no one else will touch. So next week, we'll look at William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. And the Lord be with you.